You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello everybody and welcome to The Good GP. My name's Sean Stevens, and today we're talking to Meredith Blake. Meredith is an Associate Professor at the School of Law at the University of Western Australia. She's taught and researched in the areas of medical law and criminal law for over 15 years. She's published multiple papers on health ethics and law and recently presented to the West Australian Senate inquiry into voluntary assisted dying. Welcome, Meredith. Thanks, Sean. Meredith, in my experience of talking to a range of GPs about the issue of voluntary assisted dying, I've been surprised at the number of people who don't have strong opinions. The public debate is understandably dominated by people who do hold strong views on either side of this debate, but I'd estimate there's a large majority, probably about 70%, who are either undecided or whose opinion is not strongly held. I'm hoping in our discussion today that we can look into some of the uh, ethical issues that perhaps underpin someone's ability to make a decision here. So can you please uh, tell us from a a moral philosophy point of view uh, how we could consider um, the various positions on voluntary assisted dying? Sure. Um, Before I do that, I'd just like to say that you pointed, you made a comment there about 70% or so. I think one of the things that's so important moving forward with this is to have evidence and that not to work on intuition or or anecdotal stuff, but really, and that is important, but really have that evidence and proper, um, robust research that's leading the decisions that we make. In terms of moral philosophy, moral philosophy is a form of philosophy that deals with ethics. It's systemic, it's uh, systematic in the sense that it it promulgates um, a logical approach to difficult questions that arise in healthcare ethics. Um, There are many different um, sorts of uh, schools in or many different schools in moral philosophy and I should say that right from the outset those schools all take seriously the um, right to respect for personal autonomy which is a very central value here and the um, the I suppose the not the right to life because we need to be very careful about how we use the term right it has a uh, particular meaning in the law and in ethics, and, and a not settled meaning, I might, I might say. But we also need to be careful about how we uh, look at the life interests that we're concerned with, and most usually it's expressed as the sanctity of life. Yep. In ethical debate, there's a, a, a view promulgated by um, utilitarian ethics, a particular man named Peter Singer, who you may have heard of, who says that it's actually not about the sanctity of human life, about the sanctity of the life of persons and therefore he would say that we are in fact um, uh, specious in our approach to uh, the protection of life. That's a very interesting argument but I think we need to recognise that there are, there are different schools. So we've got deontology which is really about intrinsic ethics and that's saying that certain courses of action are either right or wrong, so we say it's wrong to kill. That has its problems, deontology, because we can lead to clashes. So we could have a situation where we say, well, it's wrong to kill, but it's right to respect personal autonomy. And there's not that much guidance on how to resolve that conflict. Then we have utilitarianism, which is a form of consequentialism, in which whether or not something is ethical is dictated by the outcome. So it's not focused on the act or the motive of the actor, it's focused on the outcome. The the greatest good for the the greatest greatest number of people. The greatest number of people. But what do we call a good here? 
um, the traditional uh, utilitarianisms would say that, that was pleasure, happiness. But there are arguably lots of other things which are good for humans, including justice and respect for their rights. So it, that has its own problems in the sense that it's difficult to define what we would say is a good. It's, utilitarianism has also had its problems in the sense that by ignoring the motive or the nature of action, the action of the individual, it can lead to some um, results which people find um, offensive yep. and counterintuitive. Then there are um, other schools of it. Those are the two that tend to yep. dominate things. But there are other um, ethical approaches, one of which um, some of the audience might be familiar with from Beauchamp and Childress. And they say, look, there's no point in trying to um, identify one moral theory. And instead, they identify four principles. And they take those as broad starting points from which to then enter into the debate. And those are around the sanctity of life, personal autonomy, justice, and balancing all those, and trying then to work from that broad principle basis to more specific rules that can be contextualised. So in the context then of voluntary assisted dying, yeah. the if I'm understanding you correctly, the main issue is between self-autonomy and the sanctity of life. That's traditionally been identified as the two values. Yep. And, and certainly in, in the different schemes of assisted dying that we see across the globe, the value of respect for patient or individual choice is front and centre of those schemes. But the legal justification behind the models differs. And I think this is where we need to be very careful about the terminology that we use, yeah. that we don't equate euthanasia with other forms of assisted dying, which are different, and that we recognise that different cultures uh, approach the issue from their own perspective and their own norms and their own values. So the system that operates in the Netherlands is quite different to the system that operates in Oregon. The other thing and, and it changes over time. Uh, and, it, and it does change over time. And, and some of the, you know, is responding to the evidence that comes yeah. out. So the previous speaker was talking about, you know, where you've got sanctioned schemes in place, you can then build up a body of evidence around that so you actually know what's going on. Yeah. Whereas when there isn't that sanctioned scheme, you just don't know. I mean, Professor from the Sydney School of Law did a famous study called Angels Underground, that's uh, Roger Magnuson, in which he looked at assisted dying in the time of the peak of the, the, the AIDS crisis. Mm. And, you know, that revealed that these things go on. It's, it's yeah. the same as abortion and, you know, where it isn't properly regulated, it can be pushed underground and that can yeah. be dangerous. Yeah, oh, look, I think most medical practitioners would acknowledge that Yes, it does go on. Mm. How much, as you say, is a very grey area, as we are talking about earlier. It is a very grey area. So shining some light on it yeah. would, uh, you know, would in many ways be beneficial. If we, uh, sorry, what should be the focus of our discussion when we consider uh, to change the law to allow assisted dying? What, in your opinion, should are the key factors that we should be uh, considering? Well, we, we need to make a 
a choice as a community about what is going to be the most important value that we want to protect and that we want to promote through any such scheme. So the scheme in the Netherlands is really based around a defence of necessity. It's really focused on the enviable position that a physician is placed with, with conflicting the duty of wanting to relieve suffering and preserve life. So that's a, that's a different legal basis for legalising a practice. And it's very, in the, the, the Dutch culture, very supportive, and doctors are very supportive of it over there. But if you go across to uh, the States, where they, of course, have a Bill of Rights and a right of due process, which has been litigated to the highest levels in relation to assisted dying and in relation to abortion, you see that the models that have been being introduced in seven states now are essentially based around choice, patient choice and patient control. And control has been identified, control over the process of, of dying has been identified by many researchers as being a very important characteristic of a good death. It's the lack of control which people fear. And so the statistics from Oregon indicate that there are a lot of people that the people that take up this option don't necessarily follow through with it. But what mm. they have with that is they have that reassurance that they have ultimately if they choose to do so, they have a sense of control. They, they talked about that as existential angst. Yeah. And I think the stuff I read was that having that ability and knowing you've got the tablet there if you need it is a form of palliation in and of itself. Yeah. And even though I think it was 30% didn't use it, having it was, was still very useful. I suspect useful. It's, it's, it's actually greater than that. But we, we learn a lot from that. And I think it's good that in the Victorian inquiry, they did look at, look yep. at a model that has generated a lot of data. So I think that, that when we're looking at how we approach this difficult issue, to which there is never going to be an answer that satisfies everybody, but what we can do is we can recognise that we've this is a very important question. People care about this. They've cared about this for a long, long time. And the greatest minds, the greatest intellectual minds have been arguing about this for centuries. So it's not just come up now. It, it's been um, a concern of humanity for a long, long time. So because we care about it, it's important to us and it's got to be done properly. So as a community, if we decide that we want to question the way that we approach this, then we need to say, well, what is it that we as a community value? We value compassion. We value um, respecting people's choices. We value disability. We value all these sorts of things. So the way to do, try and to do this is to say that, well, we're not always all going to agree on it, but we can put into place structures that at least will assure people that it's serving mm. it, those aims. So. If we decide that what's most important here is patient choice and control, then we need to look at the process of consent. So consent, of course, is the justification for the legality of all medical treatment, except where, of course, a person isn't able to give their consent. So if we look at the planks that make up consent, we've got capacity, we've got voluntariness, and we've got the... Um, giving of information related to the particular procedure. We accept that. That's not controversial. So if we're looking at legalising some form of voluntary assisted dying, we need to, we need to make sure that those, those aspects of a valid consent are really front and centre mm. and that we can introduce protections that make that process 
very transparent, that make people accountable, and, and, and we're not changing anything there because that's a process that we all accept is a valid and a good one for um, promoting patient mm. choice. And we can make it more robust if yep. we feel that actually this is a particular, particular interest that we want to make sure is, is protected. So I think that that's a, a very important place mm. to start. But we also have to have discussions around the scope of the scheme, yep. whether we want to include uh, situations where people aren't terminally ill, whether we want to include situations where people are engaging in advanced care planning and they've written an advanced mm. care directive. And so we need to have important discussions about all of that based on the evidence that we've mm. collected. I, I think that's right. As a academic college, we are very driven by evidence and what is, you know, what is in the best interest of our patients and what is the evidence for it. If we turn now to the doctors who may be called upon to be involved in this uh, legislation, how ethically do you see the position of a doctor who says, I support the right of a patient to have access to this treatment, but I, as an individual, am not prepared to give it? Is that an ethical position to hold? Well, the position of the law is that the law won't force a doctor to act when no. the doctor and you would know this, believes it's not in the best interests of the person. The doctor is, is a human, <laughs> is human like anybody else and entitled to have his or her own views and own moral sense of the world and own, own view of what is right and what is wrong. And ultimately ethics is that question, how should we live? And doctors are entitled to have their own ethical view of the world along with everybody else. How should we live? And the important thing is that we inform our views of how we should live, not by reference to terms which are very, very and use this slippery in, in nature. I think that it's important to recognise that euthanasia doesn't have a settled definition. For some people it means some forms of assisted dying, for others it means more or less than that. So I don't think that we can assume that everybody has the same idea about that. And I think that we need to be very careful about, for example, using terms like the slippery slope to, in a sense that that actually means anything without exploring what that mm. is saying. And I think that for the person who, as you've, you know, the, the doctor who says, I support your right, but I'm not prepared to myself engage in that, one of the last speakers referred to the conscientious objection. It is an accepted part of uh, medical care and, and proper medical practice that somebody may say, well, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing this, but I think that attached to that, there should also be some sort of obligation to direct the person yeah. to where they can find the relevant information or to refer them on. Yeah. Because we don't want, ultimately, you know, the whole, I suppose, ethos and spirit of the scheme, if it's about patient control, about that being hampered by people in the profession who are, uh, are making the patient uncomfortable, I suppose, yeah. by, by not. But I think that the, the conscientious objection is, is, is well accepted. Yeah. It's written into the Victorian yeah. legislation. Okay. It's, it's, it's written in there as a matter of law. Okay, finally, the Hippocratic Oath prohibits hastening death or killing people, basically. How do you see the Hippocratic Oath fitting into this debate? Well, the Hippocratic Oath, I think, is 
Well, it's obviously a very ancient document. Two and a half thousand years. And yeah. it was uh, created, I think, as much to give a group of professionals some cohesion and some presence in the ancient medical marketplace. But I think that we come back constantly, I think, to two of the to the, the norms expressed in the, in the oath. And I might add that the Hippocratic Oath is not ethics in and of itself. Professional codes aren't ethics. They're very helpful, but they're not based on an internal conviction, a consistent internal conviction of what is right and what is wrong. They, for that, we can only go to the, to the secular moral reasoning. But I think that, you know, when we come to the Hippocratic Oath, the concepts of beneficence and non-maleficence stand out. And what I would say is this, if we're looking at harm, not causing harm, and benefiting a patient, I'll come back to the evidence that's been collected by people like Peter Singer as to what makes a good death. And that is associated with beneficence, about giving control, about advanced care planning, about dignity, so that actually the whole concept of beneficence or doing good is actually closely linked to a lot of the reasoning behind wanting to allow voluntary assisted dying. And that is probably the the thing that we have to confront, that the very things that we want to do, we want to do good, we don't want to harm, is that the notion of harm and good are quite subjective and that people have their own views of what's harmful and what's good for them. That We need to accept that actually that whole ethos is actually quite consistent with somebody who wants to give a patient a good death. So that's where our that's where the trip lies, I think, is to mm. recognising that there are some truths out there, but there's quite a lot of you know your life and your death is yours, yep, and um, you're entitled to have due respect. Finishing where we started, patient <laughs> autonomy. Thank yes. you very much, Meredith. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to uh, further talk on this debate. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you so much.